As I have um, said before, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are primarily about who? Israel, the nation of Israel. And so in light of that, because we're right in the middle of this now, in light of that, someone might ask uh, if these chapters have any relevance uh, to us, right? Because we're not the nation of Israel, correct? That's right. We are, we are Gentiles. So how do they relate to us? Well, they absolutely do relate to us, beloved. Uh, the unfolding drama, and that's what it is that God has laid out for us, the unfolding drama of the nation of Israel and God's special dealings with her will, if we pay close attention, will help us to better understand our God Just think about what we learn about our God through watching Israel and God's dealings with the nation of Israel. What might be something that we learn about our God through those these events? Huh? Holy his holiness, certainly. His faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his love, his undying love. All of these things we can learn about our God as we watch these things play out. Our salvation, here's something else that we learn. It is the depravity of humanity. The depravity of humanity or the sinful nature that all of us are born with. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that today, okay? So I titled today's message, Inexcusable. Inexcusable, because in our text, what we're going to find is Paul takes away the excuses that a Jewish person might have had for their failure to embrace the gospel. He takes them away. They're without excuse. They are inexcusable. So this morning, if you look inside of your bulletins, you'll find this outline. We're going to simply do this. We're going to look at two possible but inapplicable, in other words, they don't apply in this case, excuses for Israel's unbelief so that we might better understand why so many fail to embrace the gospel. Why so many fail to embrace the gospel. The first excuse that could be offered up is that they did not hear the gospel. Paul will deal with that. And the second one is that they did not understand the gospel. Pretty simple, right? They didn't hear it. They didn't understand it. Those are the the possible excuses, but we will see that neither apply in the case of Israel. Now, before we get into the text, let me remind you of a a statement or of the last statement that we looked at from the Apostle Paul was verse 13, because today we're going to begin in verse 14. So it was verse 13. That's where we left off of chapter 10. Paul says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Yeah, and that, beloved, that is an incredible statement in promise, an incredible statement in promise. And I said to you last Sunday, listen, that to call upon him, right, because that's what it says, if we call upon anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, it means to appeal to the Lord to save you in accordance with who he is and what he has done. I'm going to say that again. 
What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Because we better know if that's what brings about salvation. It means to appeal to the Lord to save you in accordance with who he is and what he has done. So then, beloved, in order for a person to call on the Lord and be saved, they must know and believe the truth concerning the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. You with me? Can't just, I can't just, I'm just like, hey, Lord, I don't know anything about him. I don't know what he's done, and I'm saved. That's not what Paul is expressing or teaching. Or I might put it this way. In order for a person to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, they must be exposed to and believe the gospel. Okay? The gospel. Now, in our day, 21st century, we can be exposed to the gospel in many ways, right? We have pamphlets that describe the gospel, tracts that describe the gospel. We have the gospel on the internet. We have the gospel on the radio. We have the gospel on television, right? We have the Bible that contains the gospel, yeah. And there's lots of Bibles available all over our great land and even all over the world. But in ancient times, now back to the first century, and that's the context in which Paul writes, or Paul's day, The message of the gospel, they didn't have all that stuff. It had to be communicated by word of mouth to the hearing of others. You with me? That's how people were made aware of or exposed to the gospel. So the gospel would not be heard unless someone, a person, proclaimed it. Okay? They didn't have tracks, beloved. They didn't say, check out this awesome website, www.gospel.com. Right? They didn't have any of that. And a person, now I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Because we're going to step into the text. So I'm kind of explaining it to you ahead of the reading of it. That's what I'm doing. And a person who faithfully proclaims or preaches the gospel is really nothing more than a herald. A herald. Have you heard that word before? Uh, it's a, a herald is simply this. A person entrusted by another with a message and sent forth to make it known. A herald. So then, in the case of the gospel, Christ sends out heralds, heralds, the apostles, the apostles, uh, his church, uh, Christians, beloved. Huh? Heralds, he sends out heralds. And so then heralds are those who have been entrusted by Christ to proclaim, not their own message, but the message that he gave them, a particular message. What message would that be? The gospel. Follow me? And so heralds preach or proclaim that message. People hear, hears, believe, believers call, and those who are call or call are saved. You follow me? And that's What I just told you is what's in verses 14 and 15, and and so we're kind of stepping into our text, so let's look at it. What I just explained to you is what we're going to find in verses 14 and 15 of Romans 10. After saying that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says this, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming, speaking forth? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And what's that good news, beloved? What's the good news he's talking about? The gospel. The gospel. The the good news concerning Christ and the salvation that our Lord has brought to sinners. At the end of verse 15, Paul draws out now, I just read it, a statement uh, from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. In that context, or in the context of Isaiah, the prophet, when, when, he, when he says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the prophet was speaking of the messengers or heralds who were sent to announce the good news of Israel's release from Babylonian captivity. Okay? These messengers were gladly received and celebrated, right? That's that's what happened by the Jewish people because they came bringing really good news, the release of Israel, their captivity to Babylon. So the heralds of the good news are said to have uh, beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. Why? Because literally they have beautiful feet? I don't think so. I mean... Uh, if that's the qualification to be a preacher of the gospel, boy, a lot of people are out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? I'd be in. I'd be in. Uh, they say they have beautiful feet because those feet, this is what they're saying, those feet carry a message that is very welcomed by those who hear it. You with me so far? I mean, yeah, woo, because the message they're bringing, those feet are bringing to us, They're beautiful because the message is beautiful. However, in Romans, Paul applies this verse now from the book of Isaiah to the Jews of his day to whom the gospel was being given or proclaimed to. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. But sadly, beloved, Israel did not gladly receive the messengers of the gospel, nor welcome their message. Now look at verse 16. Paul kind of just stops here. He pauses after making that statement. They should have received these messengers gladly. They should have responded In obedience to their message, they should have have said yes to the gospel, but they did not. And in verse 16, Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Obeyed the gospel. Do you think that's odd that Paul says obeyed instead of believed? Do you think that's a little strange? Well, listen, I've told you this. I've said this. The the good news, as some translations have, it's the gospel, They have not obeyed this gospel, the good news. Remember that the gospel is a message that calls upon all those that hear it to believe it. It's not an option, beloved. It's not like here. Do you want this? Yes, no, it doesn't really matter. Take it if you want it. That's not the presentation of the gospel. Here comes Lord, Lord, and he says, believe Submit your life to me. Surrender yourself to me, and I will save you. 
Now, if he is Lord, and he is, remember I said this last week, then he is the supreme being to whom all allegiance, obedience, and worship is due. So when the Lord sends out his heralds and they proclaim his message, and the message says, repent and believe, there's no option there. Only a fool thinks there's an option there. Submission, obedience to the message, believing the message is the appropriate response to that message, the gospel message. Do you understand me? Do you understand what I'm saying? So Paul says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then he says, for Isaiah says, Lord, and he quotes Isaiah again, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The they, but they have not obeyed the gospel, beloved, the they in the context is clearly Israel, okay? It's Israel. Uh, If you have a new international version of the Bible, NIV, uh, they just, they put verse 16 this way, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Now, this I've talked to you about translations before, right? Uh, some translations are closer to what the actual manuscripts are, what they say. They, they try to stay very, very close to that and still try to give you a translation that makes sense and that you can understand. Other translations uh, sometimes move away from the original in an attempt to try to help you understand what they believe the text is saying. So that's the case here with the NIV. They, they put the word Israelites there, but it's not there in the original. It is they. It is they. Uh, So they're doing that for clarity, but the ESV and other translations are closer to the original. It's just they. But we know based on the context that it's Israel. Okay? You with me? All right. Now, as an understatement, Paul says that not all, not all obeyed the gospel. That that is an understatement. The reality is, with, with the exception of a small remnant, remember we talked about this, remnant, It's just a small piece of the whole. Uh, With the exception of a remnant, the majority of the Jewish people had hardened their hearts against the gospel. That was true in Paul's day. That is true today. That is true still today. 2,000 years, their hearts have become even more hardened against the gospel. Generally speaking, is God still saving Jews? He is, but it's a very small number, beloved. It's a very small number. At the end of verse 16, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah again, and this time, just the first part of uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 1, saying, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So what is, what is the prophet Isaiah referring to? If we look back at the original context, it's simply this. Do you guys remember what Isaiah 53 is about? It's a pretty like, hey, that's like a pretty substantial chapter in Isaiah. Uh, what is it about? The Messiah, it's about Christ, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Isaiah foresaw that the message of salvation or the word concerning the one who would save sinners by suffering and dying in their place, because we see all that, a substitutionary death on the, on the behalf of sinners through this one, this servant, he foresees, Isaiah foresees that that message would be rejected by the nation of Israel. And so he says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, their refusal to believe the gospel was foreseen in Scripture many, many years before this actually occurred, and sadly, it was confirmed by history. Okay? So Paul's just expressing the reality of what has happened. 
Now look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay, so it's kind of like, what's this? How does this fit in with everything that was just said? Well, Paul, look, Paul kind of pauses at 16 and just reflects Israel's unbelief. He reflects on Israel's unbelief. But in verse 17, he simply picks back up where he left off with verses 14 and 15. He's just kind of picking back up and He sums it up, what he was saying in 14 and 15, by saying that faith comes from hearing or as a result of hearing, which is a way of restating what he said in verse 14b, or the second statement there in 14, which says, and you can look at it there, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Basically, he's restating that idea. And with the last phrase of verse 17 He goes on to say, and hearing through the word of Christ, right? So faith comes from hearing. It's a restatement of 14. And hearing through the word of Christ. With that statement, Paul now makes it clear that hearing or the kind of hearing that can lead to faith, saving faith, can only happen if there is a word or message given concerning Jesus Christ. That is the message concerning his person and saving work or his lordship and resurrection, which Paul has already referred to. Therefore, beloved, the gospel must be preached or proclaimed or made known in order for someone to exercise saving faith or belief. You with me? You with me? This is, that's how God's decided to do it, okay? That's how he has chosen to redeem his people through the proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel has content, real content. It's not for you and I to decide what the gospel is. God has already decided for us, given us that message, and sent us out to proclaim it. And in the proclaiming of it, he brings people to salvation. When they hear it and believe it, they are saved. You with me? Right? God, you ever thought about this? God could have done a lot. He could have done it a lot of different ways, right? Uh, he could have just been, you know, he could have just zapped us. He could have zapped us. I mean, if you if you have you ever considered it, how many different ways God could have brought salvation to people? Like you're just walking along, you don't hear anything, and boom, all of a sudden, you know everything about Christ. You know that He died for you, and you respond to it in saving faith, and boom, you're saved, right? So no need for a proclaimer, a herald, all that stuff. Wouldn't that be more efficient? Uh, there's, that's one way. He didn't do that. He could have, he could have done it through angels. Now that would get your attention, wouldn't it? So he could have used angels to come and be his heralds. He didn't do that. It's, it's amazing to me. And it, it always will be amazing to me that he, he uses messed up people like us. And I'll tell you, Well, let me get to that in a second. But you know why he does it, right? He uses messed up people like us, redeemed people, his redeemed people to proclaim the message of redemption and bring other lost people into his heaven. That's amazing. And and he does it because in that way, we know he gets all the glory because he's, he's doing all this. He's making it happen. At the same time, you and I, in order for it to happen, must respond To him and do what he's called us to do, which is proclaim the gospel. Beloved, how did you get saved? 
Someone told you the gospel. Now, maybe in the 21st century, maybe you read it. Maybe you read it. Maybe you saw it on the internet. Maybe it was a track. I don't know. But someone had to bring that gospel to bear on your life. And that's how God chooses to do it. Amazing. So then the preaching concerning Christ leads to hearing and hearing to believing, or the kind of hearing that can save. You with me? So if I preach a message that is not in line with the message that Christ has given, that message cannot save. Huh? So this is why we, we're, we, I say over and over again, if someone brings to you a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible, I don't care if they use words like salvation in their message, that message cannot save. So Mormonism cannot save. So Jehovah Witnesses cannot save. So Islam cannot save. So Buddhism cannot save. They do not bring this message. There is only one message that can save. Huh? You, you see? See, we're kind of, this is the importance of this, all right? So by reaffirming in verse 17 the focus on preaching, which is what Paul's doing from 14 and 15, he's just saying, this is it, this is where it's at. Paul narrows in now on the importance of hearing the gospel, which, by the way, sets the stage for what he's about to say in the next verse, or verse 18. And that, beloved, brings us to the first point in the outline. That was all lead up to the first point. Or the first possible but inapplicable excuse for Israel's unbelief. And that is that they did not have an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, look at verse uh, please look at verse 18. Paul says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Beloved, Paul's making a, a very simple point. In attempting to explain Israel's failure to believe or embrace the gospel, According to Paul, one cannot justly use this excuse that it is because they lack the opportunity to hear the word of Christ because according to Paul, they surely had. They surely had. Again, the nation of Israel. That's what he says. Indeed, they have. He answers his own question. Indeed, they have. And in support of this statement that they have, heard the gospel. Paul quotes Psalm 19.4. Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Okay, that passage in Psalm 19.4, it, what it's affirming is that the heavens or the heavenly bodies or the sun and the moon and the stars, all of them declare the glory of God to all who are on the earth. Those are the, it's the voices of the sun and the moon and the stars of the heavens. They declare the glory of God to all the earth. So the truth of Psalm 19.4 is that the glory of God is inescapable because no one on earth can escape the testimony of the sun, the moon, and the stars who all testify to the very glory of God. You with me? So that's Psalm 19.4. But so what is Paul's purpose now in using that passage here in Romans, what's his purpose? Well, the voices, right? The voices that he says when he's quoting the psalm, uh, the voices that, that have gone out to all the earth 
and their words to the ends of the world, who do you think the voices are? It's not of the sun and the heaven and the moon and the stars. Who do you think it is? The heralds. The proclaimers of the gospel. It's Paul himself and his partners in ministry. And so what Paul sees here is an analogy between the verse and psalm of this, this proclamation that has gone out to the entire world. It's inescapable. He sees an analogy with that and the widespread proclamation of the gospel in all the areas where the Jews made their home. So wherever there was a Jewish community, wherever it existed, the gospel was brought to them. So for them, it's inescapable. And then when you think about it, this was essentially the Mediterranean basin, okay? So it's not the entire world, but it's the Mediterranean basin where Paul and his helpers, at this point when he wrote Romans, they had been laboring there for years. Doing what? Preaching the gospel. Okay? So one writer says, his countrymen, the Jewish people, could not claim lack of opportunity to hear the gospel. That's Paul's point. No way. No way. Our voices have gone out. Our words have been made known. We have brought the message to bear on their lives. In support of that fact, by the way, let's quickly consider the words of the Jews who opposed Paul's gospel-preaching ministry. Let's let's see what their perspective is concerning just what Paul and his gospel-preaching partners had done. Let's see what they say, okay? Acts 17. You don't have to turn there. It'll show up on the uh, screen. Uh, Verses 1 through 6. Now when they, Paul and Silas uh, is the they, Paul and his partner in ministry, gospel ministry, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Beloved, uh, what was Paul's... um, What what customarily did he do when he came into a city to proclaim the gospel? Do you know? Uh, He went to the synagogue. He started with the Jew first. And when the Jews ultimately and finally rejected him, he transitioned to the Gentiles permanently. But he always went into the synagogue. This is what he did. The synagogue, that's their place of worship, the Jewish place of worship. And he, so he came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, right? And on three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, right, three different periods of time, he reasoned with them from the what? Scriptures. What scriptures would these be? The Old Testament, The New Testament wasn't completed. We didn't have all the letters written. They weren't collected. He was reasoning with them from their book. Hello. Their book. It was their book, beloved. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them, here's that remnant, right? Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That's beautiful. They responded in faith. And as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, Gentiles. But the Jews, now it's talking about the majority, the Jews were jealous 
And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. They thought, he, they thought that Paul and Silas were staying there, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, watch, these men who have turned the what? World upside down. That was their perspective. That was their... These people have had an impact on our world. They've come here also. They're freaked out, right? But I just wanted you to see the perspective or how they understood the, the extent of Paul's preaching ministry, okay? One more, Acts 21, 27, and 28. Uh, we'll just come into the verse here. The Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! (laughs) This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere. You see their perspective? Yeah, that's what he was doing. That's what he had accomplished. He's teaching everyone everywhere. So that part's right. This is where they go wrong. Against the people and the law and this place. And that was their attack on Paul. They said he was undermining them, their, everything about them, their heritage, their Jewishness. He was, he was attacking the law. He was attacking the temple. He was attacking the people. He was a, he was a traitor. All of that was not true, beloved. All of that was not true. Uh, but that's, those are the kind of claims they made to get the people all riled up so that they would, you know, kill this guy, basically, or at least boot him out of their city. So, Concerning Paul's use of the language of Psalm 19.4, one writer, I'm just going to try to bring it back around, one writer says he did it, he used it to, quote, assert that very many people, by the time Paul writes Romans, have had opportunity to hear, all right? Especially when we're talking about the nation of Israel. It cannot be lack of opportunity then that explains why so few Jews have come to experience the salvation God offers in Christ. It cannot be. That cannot be the explanation. You with me? It's really a simple point. Now, but before we move to the next verse, let me ask you a question just to make a little bit of application. What about our nation? What about America? Has she not? Can it not be said that she has not, or that, I better I don't double negatives and all that. Has she not heard the gospel? Or does she lack the opportunity to hear it? I, I know full well that there are a lot of messed up, uh, perverted gospels that are being proclaimed in our nation. I get that. But for a long, long time, beloved, the gospel has been going out to our great union. You still can find Bible teaching churches in most places in our country, right? There is no doubt that many people in our nation have heard the gospel, or at least they they have lots of opportunities to hear it, huh? And yet it is quite evident that many have rejected it. Many. 
I mean, unless you believe those dumb polls that say 80% of America is Christian. And that doesn't mean anything because it's not Christian in a biblical way or definition of Christian. It's just they believe in God. But what God? I bet some of your lost family members have heard it more than a few times. Huh? But they still refuse, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be lost. But why? Why? Why would anyone refuse such wonderful news? Hold that thought, okay? Now back to our text. And the second possible but inapplicable excuse for Israel's unbelief. And here it is. They did not understand the gospel. They did not understand. Maybe that's a maybe that maybe that works. Okay? Since Paul has made it clear already that Israel's unbelief cannot be attributed to her not hearing the gospel, right? So we're gonna that one's off the table. They've heard. Then what other possible excuse could there be for their unbelief? Is it that they didn't understand what they heard? Uh, was their hearing not accompanied by genuine understanding? Well, listen, that certainly would be a mitigating factor in this situation. It would be. But let's see how Paul deals with that possible excuse, okay? Beginning in verse 19, Paul says this. But I ask... Did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Okay, not a nation. The idea here is they're not God's people or part of God's chosen nation, Israel. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation or a nation without understanding. A nation without understanding. I will make you angry. So he just quotes this from Moses, okay? We'll get to this. Then Isaiah, now he's quoting Isaiah, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. In verse 19, instead of using the the pronoun they, Okay, you see that? But I ask, uh, did Israel not understand? Instead of using the word they, as Paul has done previously to refer to Israel, so he didn't say, I asked, but I asked, did they not understand? He chooses rather to uh, use the word Israel here, okay? Now, that makes it clear to us who Paul has been referring to in this entire section, right? Okay? But it also strongly suggests the answer to Paul's question. It strongly suggests the answer to Paul's question. Watch. Did Israel not understand? And you you say, well, what do you mean? I don't understand what you mean. Well, think about it for a moment. Think about the nation of Israel. God showed Israel incredible favor to this nation. 
in many ways, but certainly in this way, by making his plans and purposes known to them. He made them known to them through the numerous and detailed prophecies recorded for them in the Holy Scriptures. Their scriptures, right? According to Romans chapter 3, verse 2, they, they, this nation, no other nation, beloved, no other people, this people were entrusted by God with the oracles of God, the very words of God. And these words were written down and kept by them and studied by them in a collection of books that you and I commonly refer to as the Old Testament. You with me? In light of that, can it really be said that Israel did not understand Surely, if anyone could understand the gospel, it would be Israel. It would be Israel. That's what makes this so crazy. What is Paul's point in quoting Moses? See, he goes on. So he quotes Moses, actually, it's Deuteronomy 32, 21. Moses, the author there. And then Isaiah 65, 1. What's the point? Well, listen, what Paul sees in the words of Deuteronomy 32.21 was a prophecy that was being fulfilled in his day. As the gospel spread abroad, as it was being proclaimed, it was being gladly received by an ever greater number of Gentiles, by a foolish people. By a people without any understanding. So again, just un, uh, it's not that they're dumb. Okay, that's not what that's not what the Bible means. So it means concerning the things of God, they were clueless, beloved. They were clueless. They they really couldn't understand things as as they really are because they didn't understand the one who made them all. They they lacked that knowledge. So they could have been very brilliant people. Certainly, many of them were in the sense of. They were doctors or engineers or whatever. They can have a mind, incredible math, and all these things, right? But when it concerns the things of God, they were idiots. Hmm? And Gentiles, or the people without understanding, listen, by embracing the gospel, were being made the people of God. They're being made the people of God and the recipients of God's blessings. While Israel, God's chosen nation, his favored nation, the people that, listen, were prepared carefully by God and made ready by God to understand and receive the gospel, were becoming more hardened in their hearts against it. And in their prejudice and pride, they were being moved to jealousy and anger over the Gentiles' overwhelming response to the gospel. They were mad. They were angry. How dare that these people, well, you're out of your mind that these people could become the people of God. 
prejudice. They thought they were superior. They didn't see their own need for salvation. They missed it entirely. One writer says this, the answer implied in verse 19 when Paul asked the question, but I asked, did Israel not understand? And then he goes on to quote Moses. The answer implied in verse 19 is this, that if an unenlightened people outside of the covenant, of God's covenant, could understand the gospel, then certainly a religious, gifted, and highly favored group like the Jews had no grounds for claiming that it was beyond their understanding. Another quote, just to kind of bring it together. The writer says, With the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, it follows that if they could understand the gospel, this foolish people who lack any understanding could understand the gospel, then certainly the Jews could not argue that it was beyond their ability to comprehend. That excuse is off the table. That's a Paul. I believe Paul is saying, and I, and I believe the same idea is now strengthened, that, that very idea is strengthened or supported by Isaiah's bold declaration as he's speaking for God there in Isaiah that Paul qu- quotes, that Paul refers to in verse 20, that being that God was found by those who did not seek him and he has made himself known to those who were not even asking about him. So one commentator says this, that what, you, what you're seeing there is an argument from the greater uh, to the lesser, from the greater to the lesser. So if this thing be true, then this thing absolutely, if this can be true, then this must be true. If this is true, this must be true. In other words, if the Gentiles, then certainly the Jews, in the sense of this. If the Gentiles, who did not have a Bible background, nor were seeking God's salvation, ended up finding it, then there could be no excuse for Israel. Or as one person says, if pagans can understand the gospel, then Israel should too. Pagans, beloved. We might even say this, if a, if a child, well, not that, no, but this, if a child can understand the gospel... And they can. God has made it simple enough. Then what's an adult going to say? I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. No, you don't. I'm sorry, that excuse doesn't fly. Not with God. No, that's not the issue. One writer adds this. Thank you for my, uh, the team who does that work back there. They're awesome, and I appreciate every single one of them. Those who lack, lack special revelation and the moral and religious training God provided for Israel had proved more responsive than the chosen people. Beloved, the bottom line is this. This is the bottom line. Israel's unbelief is not due to a lack of opportunity to hear or ability to understand the gospel. Okay? It's not. But rather, that's Paul's point. Remember I told you in chapter 10, he's going to make it very clear. It's on them. There's no way out of this. They're not going to have any reason, no no justifiable reason before God for why they rejected their Messiah and refused to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. They'll have no excuse. 
So what is their unbelief due to? We've, we've made reference to it before, to disobedient and obstinate hearts. Disobedient and obstinate hearts. Now, I want you to just hear what I'm going to say right now, because it's important. It has direct application to us as well and to the world we live in. Their unbelief, beloved, is ultimately a moral issue. It's a moral issue. It is not an intellectual one. I want you to understand that. Remember, Chris was talking about worldview, how we understand the world, how we understand why people do what they do, things of this nature. Why do people reject the gospel? Why do they fail to embrace Jesus Christ? Most of the time, it's they've heard. So we can't say it's that. Maybe they don't understand. No, it's not that, beloved. Sometimes someone needs some clarity. I get that. Someone needs help understanding a few things. But more often than not, they just don't want to believe it. Because of their sin, because of their depravity, because of their rebellion against God, they willfully choose to not believe it. That's the issue. Look at what Paul says in chapter 20. This is how he concludes. Chapter 10, verse 21. But of Israel... He says, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary or obstinate people. I say go this way, they go that way. God continues to stretch out his arms to his people Pleading with them to return, beloved. Pleading with them to return. But as of date, as of now, they stubbornly continue to refuse him by refusing the gospel, by refusing the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating their disobedience to God. But guess what? If that was the end of the story, what a tragic and terrible story. Their story is not over yet. It's not over yet. Remember I told you this drama is unfolding before us. Amazing. The good news is that someday the nation of Israel will repent. They will repent and they will embrace, fully embrace Jesus as their Christ, as their Lord, as their Savior. And you know where we're going to find that? We're going to see that? Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Yeah. Israel's future, Israel's future restoration. I said at the beginning of this message that the unfolding drama of the nation of Israel and God's special dealings with her, if we will pay close attention, will help us to better understand our God, our salvation, and the depravity of humanity or the sinful nature that we are all born with. Beloved, let me just speak to you uh, quickly. It'll be quick, I promise. Unbelief. Is not, is not an intellectual issue, it's a moral issue. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a heart issue. Some people believe it's a, it's, the, the issue is it's an intellectual issue. So because of that, if, if I can just explain the gospel in a way that they'll get it, maybe it's me, maybe I don't, I'm not good enough to explain that. That's why they're not responding. I bet, I bet my pastor could do it. I bet if I took him to this, uh, event where there's going to be a big guy up there who preaches, right? 
I bet if they go to that, then they'll respond because he'll be able to explain it in a way that I haven't been able to explain it, and that's why they're not responding. I'm just not good enough at it. Uh, no. No, that's not the case, beloved. That's not the case. In fact, in my, in my life experience, some of the uh, most messed up gospel presentations I have given resulted in the person uh, receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I was like, I mean, I got through with it. I'm like, you know, oh, that just was not good. I didn't use any of my uh, beautiful illustrations or, you know, I just kind of gave them the word and I'm not sure I explained it all well. Boom! And they receive that message by faith and they are saved. They call upon the name of the Lord, right? Huh? It's not an intellectual issue. Yes, there are we need to be good. We need to explain the gospel. We need to do it well. Absolutely. But when people reject a presentation of the gospel, it's not because, eh, just, they're just not getting it. No, they refuse it. They refuse it. Remember that message. It's a message that I am Lord. I am Lord. Submit to me. Give your life to me. I don't think so. I am Savior and salvation comes through no one else except me. No, I, don't. I, think, I think I can contribute something. They may not say those things, but in their messed up, depraved heart, that's what's going on, beloved. That's what's going on. And so when we present the gospel then, we better add to that prayer. Right? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be asking God that God... Would you break through all of that mess inside of their heart? Because if you don't, they're never going to respond to this in saving faith. They're not. They're dead in their sin. They're blinded by their sin. Their ears are stopped. They hear one thing, but their heart says, I don't think so. I don't think so. God changed their hearts. And that's what we do. We pray. So we proclaim and we pray. You get it? We're praying that God would save their souls. But he does that. Don't leave this part out. He does that through the proclamation of his gospel. So then God, through his spirit, works on this sinner. And the redeemed sinner comes to this sinner and proclaims the gospel to them. And God does this miracle. Opens their eyes and stops their ears and transforms that dead heart and gives them a heart, a, a heart that wants to love God, gives them a heart that wants to obey Jesus Christ, gives them a heart that recognizes their lostness before God, their inability to save themselves, and gives them the faith to cry out to that almighty God for his salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, that's it. So don't miss them. We pray, we proclaim. We pray, we proclaim. Don't leave one of them out. And when it's all said and done, we give all the glory to God. Beloved, if you're here and you, you, uh, let me just say this. If you're coming to church, right? If you're coming to church on a regular basis, but you do not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, how many times have you heard the gospel? Uh, if you're in this church, you've heard it a lot. We sing about it every Sunday. Honestly, we do. You wouldn't even have to hear me get up and preach. We sing the gospel. 
So what's your excuse? You've heard it. You don't understand it? A child can understand it. Repent of your rebellion. Bow your heart to Jesus Christ. Cry out to him to save you. And he will. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I do that a lot. I do that a lot because I'm just so grateful for it. It's it's as Chris said this morning, if we didn't have it, wow, we would be messed up, lost. We wouldn't see the world rightly. We wouldn't understand you rightly. We wouldn't even understand ourselves. We certainly wouldn't know salvation. God, I thank you for your word. What an incredible gift it is. I thank you for these chapters. I thank you for the nation of Israel. I thank you for all that you have done with them and and are doing with them and all that you will do in the future. And Father, I, I thank you for all that we can learn as this drama unfolds before our very eyes. Your glory, God. Your glory is playing out before us. Father, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for extending salvation to foolish Gentiles, to a people without understanding, to a pagan people, to a people who weren't even looking for you. We're pursuing other gods, running from you, and and you came after us. In your grace, in your divine wisdom, according to your perfect plan, you sought us out. You brought the gospel the bear upon our lives. We heard it, and Father, you did that work that only you can do, enabling us to, to respond to it in faith, to cry out and call upon Jesus Christ to save us, recognizing him as Lord, Redeemer, resurrected, glorified, exalted at your right hand, Father. Ruling. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for that great salvation. But Lord, we pray. As I just said, we pray. People here, there's no way everyone here is saved, Father. No way. It just can't be the case. It's just not, that is just not the case. And so, Father, there's someone here, at least one, maybe more. They've heard the gospel. They've heard it. And that's your grace, Lord, that you've brought it to bear on their lives. But, Father, they have yet to respond in saving faith. They just, they won't do it. Lord, even now, may you use this message in your spirit to convict them for the real reason that they haven't done it. They don't need more information. That's not what they need. They don't need a miracle. You gave them one when you sent Jesus Christ. They don't need that. They don't need to see something stupendous. They have what they need in order to respond and be saved. What they need to do is respond. So, Father, that great work that you did in us, might you do it in them even now. I don't command you, Father. I don't don't command these things. I plead. I plead, Lord, will you save sinners in this room even now? 
might they call upon the name of the Lord. May they stop refusing, stop rejecting, stop making excuses, stop putting it off. And may they right now put an end to their rebellion and call upon your mighty name. Recognizing the truth of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished in order to save a sinner such as them. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.